a million dollars in my hand. All I had was an offer to subscribe to some magazines. Well, now some of you may not be old enough to remember those. The, uh, there was a bunch of lawsuits back in the 90s and the early 2000s, so you don't see those kinds of advertisement quite as often as you used to. But it reminded me of the way we treat the gospel sometimes. Salvation is a free gift. And then we add the fine print. This is not God's fine print, it's our fine print. And the more we read the fine print, the more we discover some interesting and discouraging things about you know, having to, you know, make progress in our Christian life and, you know, how to, you know, show results and uh, all these kinds of things. Why is it that when we preach and teach the good news of salvation as a free gift, we're too often busy writing the fine print that undoes all the good news that we're teaching about? Sometimes the fine print that we write makes God out to be more like a good manager rather than a good savior because we think he uses our efforts in order to fulfill his promises. This is the old idea that if you just do your best, God will make up the difference. So it's not totally his goodness, his righteousness that rescues us. It's our righteousness plus his righteousness. It's, a, it's kind of a quid pro quo agreement. I do good for God and he does good for me. I scratch God's back, he scratches mine. Problem is, that's not the new creation that's assisted living in the old creation. But what do you do when that sort of gospel doesn't work anymore? Is God still good? Is God good all the time and unconditionally? If the goal is to make progress, or sanctification as we sometimes call it, become more holy, what do you do when it feels like you're slipping back instead of moving forward? Is it your failure, or is it God's? Either way, it's not good news. What do you do when you're not making progress, when you feel like you're losing and the walls are closing in and you have nowhere to turn. How do you know God is good then? This is when Psalm 34 saves the day. The subtitle of the song is psalm is, is interesting. If you, if you open your Bibles and read the subtitle underneath you know, the psalm number, It'll say, of David, when he pretended to be insane 
before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Okay, do you know that story? It's an, it's an amazing story, but it's not one of David's successes. It's one of his first huge failures. You see, David was King Saul's rising star. So first there was Goliath, and we all know the the story of Goliath, a little boy named David, you know, five little stones he took, went out there and slew the giant. By the way, that's not a really good children's story. Have you actually read that story? <clears throat> Everyone, though, loved and admired David, including the crown prince, Jonathan. David took on Every mission Saul gave him, and he was always successful. If you read the story of David in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, you discover a man that from, the, from his boyhood it seemed like he was anointed. Well, he was literally anointed when he was still a shepherd boy. It seemed like nothing could go wrong for David. He goes out there to, to see his brothers, to take him some food, and they jeer at him. Say, oh, you just came out here to watch the battle. You know, it was kind of like watching violence on TV, except in those days the violence was right in your backyard and you could just go out and watch. And David goes out and he kills Goliath. He kills Goliath when the most mighty man in Israel, Saul, King Saul, was shaking in his boots in his tent. And time after time, David saves Saul's reputation and even his life. And that, and that continued throughout David's life while Saul was still alive. David was, he was like a rock star. When he came home from battle, the girls would come out. First Samuel says, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And the sight of those girls singing for David and the sound of their song just galled Saul. And he turned against David in spite of the fact that the best asset that he had was David. He turned against David because he knew that God was with David and not with him. Well, you remember the story Saul went into depression. The Bible says that he had an evil spirit from the Lord. And uh, he was depressed. David was called in to play his little instrument. It's sometimes called a harp. It was actually a, a lyre, uh, a little stringed instrument. Uh, 
probably more like a guitar than it is a, a harp, but uh, he would play for Saul in the palace. One day, the depression overtook Saul to such an extent that he picked up his javelin and he threw it at David, intending to pin him against the wall. And David realized that it was no use. He couldn't prop up Saul any longer. There wasn't anything left. He, he had done everything right. He, in, with the power of the Lord, had won every battle for Saul. He had, he had done the right thing. He had even honored Saul when he was not honorable. And he continued to be a loyal subject to his king. But then, then things went sideways. The Bible says that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Well, things went from bad to worse. The servants of Achish said, by the way, did you notice the editor of Psalm 34 got the name wrong? Uh, it's actually Achish. The servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David apparently was uh, so much of a rock star that his fame spread throughout the land even to uh, the enemies of Israel. And when David heard what the servants of Achish were saying, he took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Can you picture that? It's not a pretty picture. It's, it's a picture of David that we'd like to avoid, but it's hard to turn away from. Because perhaps we see ourselves and our own experience in his. Sometimes in life, you can do everything right. You can do it by the book. You can know that God is with you and things still go sideways and the walls start closing in and you have no one to turn to. And maybe it's your nation that has let you down. Maybe it's your church that has let you down. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's even your church that lets you down. Where do you turn? How in the world did Psalm 34 get connected to this story of David? Well, it becomes obvious when you read down through the psalm. Notice verse 18. The Lord is close 
to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. One of the things that we learn from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount is that the kingdom of heaven is not for the up-and-coming stars, the, the rich, the successful, the ones that everybody acknowledges, oh, God is with that person. No. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God is good even when we are not. Do you believe that? Can you allow yourself to believe that? God is good even when we are not. Not only that, God is so good that he gifts the kingdom to the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. They're not the, you know, strong leader kind. They're the meek, the downhearted, the crushed, the persecuted. Jesus came to show us what kind of person God really is. And what he showed us is that God is good even when we are evil. There is no quid pro quo in the kingdom of heaven. It's not you can come into the kingdom as long as you prove yourself first. No, the kingdom of heaven is for those who have tried to prove themselves and have failed the poor in spirit. In Matthew 7, Jesus says something very remarkable to those that he claims in his kingdom. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Really, Jesus? Do you, do you mean that? I'm, I'm one of those, those poor in spirit that you were talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those that, not a strong leader. I'm, I'm, I'm way too meek for that. The, you know, the world you know, doesn't honor meekness. Jesus says, yes. Just ask. Just ask. A couple of verses later, though, Jesus says something even more remarkable. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? What's Jesus doing here? What does this have to do with asking, seeking, and knocking? Jesus is saying something about the kind of person God is. He goes on. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
let that sink in. First of all, there's several layers to this. First of all, Jesus is saying that God is good in a way that human beings can understand. And that, unfortunately, goes against a lot of teaching over the last 2,000 years. Because very prominent early on in Christian history was this idea that God is so big and so far away and so powerful, so remote from us that we can't possibly understand him. It's the ineffable God. It's the, it's the God that is, is immovable, certainly not moved by our little emotions or needs or anything like that. And with just a few sentences, Jesus undoes all of that kind of teaching. God is not only a God who is good, in the theoretical sense, but he's good in a down-to-earth sense. He's good in a way that human beings can understand. But on another layer, Jesus acknowledges that we are evil. That compared to God, we, we are evil. And yet, here's the, here's the miracle. Because Jesus came in the flesh, because Jesus was God incarnate, he brought the kingdom of heaven to us. He brought heaven to earth, and he brought God into our presence in a way that we can understand. We can understand Jesus, the human being, But here's another thing. Jesus says that God is good in a way that you can understand, but in a way that is perhaps, perhaps epitomizes the best of humanity, and yet God is even better. So, so what Jesus is saying here is you, you take the best example of parenting that you can even imagine and though you are evil you know what that is you you can imagine good parenting giving good gifts to your children and please know that God your father is even better than that But Jesus continues, and maybe you didn't realize this. It surprises me every time I read this, and that is, this is the context of the golden rule. The very next verse is, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus begins by saying, ask for whatever you want. And then he ends by saying, give whatever other people want. <laughs> he 
wraps up his promise of the goodness of God in an example of how human beings are capable of understanding goodness. We can understand God. And here, I think, is, a, is an interesting thing. When you connect the golden rule with ask, seek, and knock, it appears that by giving us the kingdom, and, and what does that mean? Well, Jesus goes through his Sermon on the Mount, you know, explaining what the kingdom is like, why the kingdom is an amazing place. The, the, the kingdom is a place where people even love their enemies. Now, if you, if you accept a kingdom like that and you live in a kingdom like that, you do have your needs met because you are one of those people who wants to practice the golden rule. And when you get a whole group of people practicing the golden rule, miracles happen. And it's all because the kingdom is gifted to us. Practicing the golden rule is not an entrance exam. It's, it's not a prerequisite to being in the kingdom. It's what happens when you accept the free gift of salvation and you accept citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. So, I wonder... Why is it that we want to add so much fine print to that? Why is it that we can't just accept a good God who gives good gifts, including the gift of salvation, to his children? And I can't speak for you, but as I've gotten older, I realize that there's a certain amount of pride, maybe, in, in thinking that, okay, I, I, I've, I've been faithful, maybe not, a, not perfect, but I've been faithful, but then there's kind of this pressure about, well, after I'm gone, you know, what will people say about me? Or what will God say about me? Which is an interesting thing because, I mean, we've all been to services for our loved ones and, and our, our precious friends and, and, you know, even leaders in our community and things like that. We've, we've been to those services. And many times they are wonderful testimonials to how people have lived their lives in faith and how they've accomplished amazing things. Uh, fortunately, when people give testimonials at funerals and memorial services, they forget all your bad things and they only remember the good things. And I am not complaining about that one bit. Because one of these days, I'm going to be gone. Uh, you did get the memo, didn't you? None of us are living forever, and, you know, unless Jesus comes first. <laughs> okay, so, you know, death will happen. 
But I'm afraid that sometimes we turn that upside down and we think that God is going to remember all our bad traits and he's going to forget all our good stuff. So, one day I, I, I tried to imagine what it would be like to preach my own funeral. What would I say? And then I imagined walking out of that service and running into God. And here's how it goes. Hello, Lord. And before he can reply, I, I blurt out, I'm so sorry, I haven't done more. There were so many things I needed to work on for the church, for my own character development, for you. I was just getting to all of that, but, but I got interrupted by that death thing. But here's my progress so far. The Lord looks amused and says, I heard that progress report you gave at your funeral. Is that what you thought I wanted to hear? Well, yes. I, I thought you were expecting results, I stammer. What kind of results? You know, my Christian walk, doing good, overcoming the world. I already overcame the world, he interrupts. Oh, I know, but I was only imitating the pattern, reflecting your image, growing in grace. Grace, he interrupts again. Do you know what you're talking about? Sure, well, maybe. Um, it's just an expression. I meant I, meant I, was, I was growing, you know, making progress, I say lamely. Well, you're not growing now. You are dead, he says, even more amused. Besides, he says seriously, grace comes from me, not from you. I know, but I was just trying to overcome as you overcame. Yes, he says, you were always precise in your theology. No wonder you irritated people in Bible class. I can't believe he's teasing me now. Then he says in a more earnest tone, but do you trust me? Of course, but, but that was only the beginning, I say. I am the beginning and the end, he says slowly, as if to teach a slow learner. I learned that in Christianity 101, I say impatiently. I moved on to the advanced stuff. Like what, he says with a patient smile. Well, like, like improving my character, growing into your likeness. Back to that growing thing again, he says. You're dead, remember? He looks very serious now. Yeah, Lord, so, so what's your point? I am now thoroughly confused. This conversation is not turning out the way I expected. The Lord leans forward, puts his hand kindly on my shoulder, 
and says, you failed. No matter how much you learned, no matter how much you overcame, no matter how much you were into health reform and spiritual growth, you still died. You didn't make it. Oh, come on! You can't use that against me, I object, starting to feel desperate. That wasn't my fault. But it still happened. If you had grown into my image, if you had overcome in the same exact way I overcame, you would at least be able to resurrect yourself, if not avoid dying altogether. Hey, that's not fair, I squirm. I feel like the rich young ruler pinned down by my own logic. I just don't know why. So I react impulsively. You're twisting my words. I didn't mean that I could be exactly like you, but that's what you said. And do you think I can let something imperfect into heaven? Well, no, his words cut deep, but, but this is really unfair. How am I supposed to be that perfect? I could never be as perfect as you. You had a bit of an advantage, you know, divine, sinless, and all that. Which is why salvation is not a competition. It's a gift, he says simply. My head is swimming. Maybe I'm missing the point, but it seems all too obvious and painful. So you're saying I'm not saved after all, in spite of everything I've done for you? I didn't need anything from you. Besides, you couldn't even keep from dying. He seems so matter-of-fact about this, and I'm devastated and silent. So, I'm not saved? I finally whisper. I didn't say that, he replies kindly. So, what is the answer? I cry out. I am now without a shred of argument, status, or reputation to rely on. My grace is sufficient. Sufficient for what? I am beyond desperate. Everything, he's almost shouting now. How can I be sure? I blurt out, not caring anymore that I don't sound very spiritual. Do you trust me? He looks deep within my soul. I'm now so unsure of everything else. The question itself brings relief. Of course I trust you. I must confess, I don't trust myself anymore. Then, by grace, you have been saved through faith. What? I'm incredulous. I'm glad you found pleasure in imitating me, he continues. My good friends do that. But you were never saved because you died making progress. You were saved 
because I loved you and you trusted that to the end. After a wonderful moment of silence, I say softly, if I had known that a long time ago, I could have saved myself a lot of worry. Worry is the agent of legalism and perfectionism. It is the enemy of faith, the Lord says with determination. But does that mean I didn't have to do all those good things I did in my life? Did you have to do them? Or did you want to do them? The Lord says with an understanding tone. Well, I guess I wanted to. I, I just thought I deserved some credit for doing them. But, but I really did love, I mean, I do love you, then what would have changed if you had known this before? I think for a moment, and then say hesitantly, I guess I would have done a lot of the same things. I just would have been a lot happier, less judgmental, and probably a whole lot easier to live with. And what would you have said at your funeral? He asks, grinning now. <laughs> I, I would have said I fought the good fight. I won some, I lost some, but I was happy to know that your grace was always sufficient. I would much rather talk about that than anything I did or didn't do. He looks at me with a twinkle in his eye. And since this conversation is only in your imagination, you can talk about it in life rather than in death. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. <laughs>